You are listening to Studying Pixels, an ultra-violent podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simon. I'm a game study scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes. I'm a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. The good old violent video game debate. That's going to be it for today. Memories. Has this been around as long as video games have, this this debate? Not sure whether it's been around for as long as video games have been, because video games, technically you would say the 70s? Would you say the 70s, late 60s for video games? I think so. Yeah, the danger of Pong. What is it teaching our children? <laughs> I think the big one was, though, and we addressed this in our ESRB episode, Mortal mm. Kombat, I think. That was the release of Mortal Kombat in 1994. That was the point where there was at least... No, wait, this was the second big discussion because the first one was mm, this car rate, Carmageddon. Oh, is that, is that the one? Game. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But well, I know that the the Mortal Kombat situation, that's the first time that it came in public view in a big way in, in the States anyway, because that was a whole congressional hearing about it, like we talked about in our ESRB episode. Where it actually changed public discourse and where it changed yeah. some legitimate like policies on how to handle the matter. Whereas I think before it was always kind of just frowning and looking upon violence in video games and being like, oh, mm, not so sure about this. Yeah. But definitely Mortal Kombat made a big dent and um, led <laughs> to the establishment of the ESRB, which we have discussed in our plus episode on how the ESRB works. We can link that in the show notes and i think that mm. probably the most for me the most memorable one was around the late 90s and early 2000s in the wake of the columbine high school massacre oh yeah that was something that had such a profound impact in germany as well even though i mean school shootings do you say school shootings is that still legitimate terminology oh yeah yep unfortunately yeah it's a, a pretty uh, common occurrence i'm afraid to say in the states it is still isn't it mass shootings i think that i guess that's that's more of the common parlance now because it's not always schools um not to start so dour in this episode but it is about violence and this is a huge part of the the culture in the states i'm afraid so yeah uh, mass shootings big problem here and i think uh, yeah probably the most the one that shook the world uh was Columbine back in the late 90s, like you said. So you said that that was, that was a big deal in Germany, too. It was. It was a big deal in Germany because mm. it's kind of the debate swept over, especially when I think a year later, there was one of the only, um, I don't want to be mistaken, but it's, or I, I might be mistaken here, but it's probably one of the only school shootings that ever happened in Germany. In like mm. 2001, I think, in a place called Erfurt, there was also a kind of school massacre in Germany. Oh, wow. That's still uh, like a, a huge public and, and cultural trauma. And in the wake yeah. of this this entire thing, the school shootings and what is going on with our with our children, what's going on with the youths of this world, that people would do such a thing it kind of fueled a moral panic that really went mm. down hard when it comes to video games. Well, I think that there's always a, a, a goal in sort of pointing the finger at something. What is the cause of this? If we can only, 
if we can only excise this horrible thing that's led to this, then maybe this won't happen again. Uh, not to, not to get too political right out the gate here, but it never seems to be about guns in the states. It's always about something else. I would say that the gun is a big part of the shooting, but uh, whether it was sort of the satanic panic or you know heavy metal music, Marilyn Manson games. and Slipknot. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yep. Um, man, they were big during the Columbine discussion. Yeah. Uh, and I can tell you, I was like yeah. in the early 2000s, I mm. was, I was like, I was a teenager and I was listening to Marilyn Manson and Slipknot and I loved playing, you know, Doom and uh, <laughs> Counter-Strike. It was really tough. It was a time and this might be for, uh, when, if you're a little bit younger and you haven't experienced that yourself, might hardly be imaginable, but when you brought up that you are playing video games in conversation, for example, then people would be genuinely worried and would be like, yeah, are you okay? It's like, are you sure this, you know, what's wrong? Yeah. Is, is this is something the matter that you want to talk about something? I think I, I had a bit of that too. It's you always start on the back foot, especially when you're, when you're looking to, to you know, when I, when I was a kid, when I was referring to video games, I was referring to Pokemon and Mario and stuff like that. And so yeah. to have that reaction from people, it's like, no, no, <laughs> wait a minute. It's not, it's not the, uh, the old ultra violence that you're thinking that I'm engaging with here. And even if it was, I think it was that time where for the first time I realized that the media and public discourse, that they are not always right. And that they're also deliberate attempts to lies. I distinctly remember how I played Counter-Strike a lot on LAN parties with friends and sometimes also online. I was in a Counter-Strike clan. And then we read in a newspaper, it's a Boulevard magazine, it's a terrible one, but unfortunately the most economically successful in Germany, the most widespread. It's called the Bildzeitung. And they had an article on Counter-Strike where they wrote how you get, in Counter-Strike you get extra points for killing children and old ladies and such things, you know? <laughs> People were just, you realize, like, they are just making stuff up, you know? They have no idea about this video game. They're just making stuff up to demonize it and to basically get people to push against it and to be upset. And this is something I realized at that age in that particular instance. Ah, old old Counter-Strike, killing children and old ladies. I believe that was on the cover of it. That's it's That was the selling point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we all know it's like, it's like counter-terrorists, terrorists, and old ladies with and old children. <laughs> <laughs> just with, with prams, just walking around. <laughs> exactly. Well, that is exactly the topic that we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about ultra-violence in video games. And whether there's anything wrong with it. It's going to be a reading episode and we're going to jump into it in just a moment. But before we do that, let me briefly tell you that if you like this show and if you want to make us, want to help us make it happen, then you can support us by becoming a Studying Pixels Plus member. Because you can then get all of our episodes entirely ad-free and you can get a lovely sticker that says, I am Studying Pixels Plus. Excuse me, I am studying Pixels, not I'm studying Pixels Plus. And it has a little, little mascot, Pixelcoom. It's very cute. Mm. It's a good sticker. And then you have access to all of our monthly episodes, plus episodes that we do. Sometimes they are about video game culture, some deep dives, and other times they are there to help you study and research. 
I thought maybe we could give a very brief overview of the episodes that we've done so far, because they are only eight in number, but the entire catalog will be available to you if you choose to subscribe. And I'm just going to briefly read out the titles. They are pretty self-explanatory. We did the following. How not to write a term paper. How Yakuza works. How the ESRB works. 10 tips to nail your next presentation. 10 features that should be in every video game. The rise and fall of visceral games. What makes a good research question. And the tragic death of the PS Vita. That is the most recent one. And every month we'll add another one to that roster. So isn't that cool? Every month studying Pixels Plus becomes a little bit more attractive. Wow, That's what right. a deal! <laughs> <laughs> if you're curious about it, then you can go to studyingpixels.com slash plus to find out more. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It is time for some reading. We're going to look into David Waddington's article titled, it's a little bit of a longer title, <laughs> Locating the Wrongness in Ultra-Violent Video Games. It's been published in Ethics and Information Technology in 2007. And I must say that this article is one with which I disagree to a certain extent. Like, you, you might hear throughout the course of this episode quite some statements that you might find intuitively disagreeable. And I totally understand because I disagree as well. But this is going to be the first part of a series in which we engage a little bit more with the subject of violence and the morality of violence. So we are going to have another reading episode coming up in which we also critically reflect on what is being said today. So what we say in this episode is not necessarily the end of the debate, it's rather the beginning. And an important step too, I think, because I was reading this and I've, I've engaged with this debate on a lot of different levels in public, in private, but this article, I will say, David Waddington did, as much as I disagreed with a lot of the article, as you said, at the end of it, it did definitely make me reflect on where I stand in this debate. So I think that it's an important piece to understand the argument that's happening around violent video games, and if you're looking to engage in this argument, or if you find yourself 
talking to a relative or a friend who is kind of throwing a lot of these terms at you, I think this is a good way to situate yourself in your own beliefs. Yeah. To understand also the argumentation that is often thrown at video games, because David Waddington very much sees a problem in ultraviolence in video games. He finds that to a certain degree wrong, not because he just says, lol, I don't like it, because he <laughs> actually is a, a professor in the Department of Education at Concordia University, and he specializes in the philosophy of education. So he has engaged with the subject on a moral philosophical level. This means we're not going to talk about any kind of media effect experiments about, you know, whether it makes people like empirically more aggressive or something. But this is an article that looks at the matter from a moral philosophical lens. And Waddington, he says at first that we have to state that virtual violence is not identical to real violence. That is something that I think everyone can agree on because otherwise it would mean if you shoot someone, if you shoot a civilian in GTA 5, then the police could come over and you could be taken to jail if it was the same thing. And it's evidently not. Right. I think a good, <laughs> a good place to start. It is not the same thing as actual violence. Okay. Thank you, David. <laughs> <laughs> Let's lay that kind of foundation. Yes. <laughs> but still, it might still feel wrong. That's the interesting point because... Mm. It might still be like you do something in a video game, you commit some kind of violent act, and you feel a little bit disgusted by it, or you feel like you shouldn't have done that, or you even feel like maybe you are in the situation that you ought to exert some violence and you don't want to because you feel like it's wrong. And that is exactly the question that David Waddington ponders. And we could look at this from, I think, let's split it up into three sections to go through this step by step. The first one is the application of utilitarianism. That's the first moral philosophical perspective that he applies. The second one is Kantian virtue ethics. So this would be the categorical imperative that we can then talk about. And the third one, I titled it simulation unease because it is this kind of question of what makes virtual violence feel wrong even though it's not real violence. So these would be like the three chapters of this main story. Shall we jump into utilitarianism first? Uh, I, I was, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> jump into utilitarianism. Finally, after episode, th <laughs> episode 33, finally yes. we're introducing the concept of utilitarianism. <laughs> <laughs> we can do this. We introduce it properly now so that we can refer back to it in future episodes as well and just simply presume that all of you then know <laughs> what utilitarianism yeah. is. For all, all the years to come. Mm. So utilitarianism is the ethics of utility. That's where the word comes from. An ethics of usefulness. And it's, the term is crucially coined by Jeremy Bentham, who was, I think, predominantly a lawyer and a philosopher. And uh, the key idea of utilitarianism is that you determine whether something is morally wrong or morally right by checking whether it increases the overall happiness of people. So, a simple example would be, let's say you murder someone because that person disagrees with you. You have a debate, someone is like, maybe you're a Democrat, the other person is a conservative. And so, 
you choose to murder them. <laughs> now, <laughs> the question is, it's just hypothetical example. Yeah, yeah, yeah? just hypothetical, yeah. <laughs> Let's say someone would start introducing very strict abortion laws. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm not going to go there yeah. now. But, <laughs> but let's say you murder someone for, for some random reason. Then mm. if you look at this from a utilitarian standpoint, you want to you ask, like, is this morally correct or is it not? And from a utilitarian standpoint, it is not because you killing that person, that means... Well, okay, so what's the benefit of it? The benefit might be that you feel more at ease with your opinion now because you don't have someone who disagrees with you. So or you might even feel a kind of a relief over the anger that you had in that conversation, in that debate. Cool, so that's, that's on the positive side. But on the negative side is that that person's life is eradicated. Uh, that person might also have other people that care about them that fall into deep grief. It might be a traumatic incident for many other people, maybe people who witness it, or maybe relatives of the victim, that will be troubled and traumatized, potentially for the rest of their life. And it might even cause a huge outcry, where it's like, Democrat randomly murders Republican, and then it's like an entire shift in the political landscape. So there are a lot of issues that weigh, it, weigh in on the negative side, and that's why, as obvious as it is, that's how the utilitarian reasoning would be that's why you shouldn't just murder someone. It's kind of like saying, all right, well, if I, if I intuit that murder is wrong, then utilitarianism comes in and says, the reason, be, the reason behind the wrongness is because of the real world effect that that action would have, right? So you're not only murdering this person and taking away their life, but you're also taking away any of the good that they may do in the future, Granted, you're also taking away the bad that they may do in the future, but the implications of all of all of the removal of that person's life is not good, ultimately. Yeah, but this is exactly the thing. From a utilitarian standpoint, you look at the consequences and not at the action itself. Whether murdering in itself is right or wrong doesn't matter. The only question is, what are the effects and are there more benefits than there are harms that are caused by this? There are some more contested questions. I mean, now we've chosen a very simplified example with randomly murdering someone. But let's say you have this classic like modification of a trolley problem where you are a doctor in a transplantation ward in a clinic and you've got four patients that are dying because their organs are failing. Now, a young person comes into the clinic and all their organs are perfectly working. You know that if you were to take that young person's, young healthy person's organs you could save four people and just for the sake of argument, let's assume that you know for certain, because you're such a good surgeon, that these organs would work and that these people would have a long time to live still and would be happy and fine after the transplantation. Then there's a bit of an issue because from a utilitarian standpoint, yeah, I mean, on the one hand, you have the life of one person. On the other hand, you have the life of four people. So, they weigh in more into this equation. But there are also other things that need to be considered, such as, for example, what if you did that? And then it gets publicly known that if you go to a clinic as a person, as a healthy person or as a young person, you might actually get murdered and they might take your organs, <laughs> right? Yes. Suddenly no one wants to go to a clinic anymore. It causes a huge problem. So you need to then consider that as well. And that makes this 
what is called uh, like a utilitarian calculus that makes or a hedonistic calculus makes it very complicated. Yes, if if you want a good, are you familiar with the show uh, The Good Place, Stefan? Unfortunately, not. No, it's a great show. So I won't get into it. It, it explores a lot of different philosoph- moral philosophies, but the idea basically is um, if if we're looking at things from a utilitarian perspective, your your life becomes kind of a nightmare because you're always doing that calculus and trying to decide what the best outcome is. And it gets really messy when you start adding in personal attachment to people or you start learning more about uh, a particular person who's um, who you may be affecting with this choice that you're making. So it's, it's a, it's a definitely a, an important way to look at things, but it, boy, it gets really messy. If you say I'm a utilitarian. <laughs> it, yeah. It gets messy and it goes against, um, it goes against often, our intuitions when it comes to how empathic we might feel or how troubled we might feel to do certain acts. Yet, uh, there are also very much prominent contemporary examples of utilitarianism. Utilitarianism can also mean effective altruism, which is something that's relatively common at the moment. The idea that if you donate, let's say you have $50 to donate, where do you donate it to? And according to utilitarian considerations, you should not donate it to, let's say, homeless people in your neighborhood. You should not donate it to people that are, you know, in the U.S. or that are in Europe and that maybe, you know, have options to still fall into a social security system, even though they might obviously be in a terrible situation. But you should actually go for who on this planet is in the worst possible situation. Who needs it the very most? And those people you should donate to and not the people in your vicinity. So there are many important aspects of utilitarianism, many that are to be criticized and many that make it a very effective form of moral reasoning. And if we want to apply them to video games, Waddington says, we have to determine two aspects. One, if ultra-violent video games ought to be wrong according to utilitarian considerations, then they must pose some kind of risk to cause harm, right? They must have some kind of harmful effects, harmful consequences. And number two, that risk that they exert must be higher than the benefits that video games and ultra-violent video games bring about. Those are the two criteria. They must have a risk, and that risk must be higher than the benefits. Simple calculation. Mm. And he says, quote, Any argument against violent video games on these grounds needs to show that there is a significant potential for an increase of risk. End quote. So, what, what counts as a significant potential for an increase of risk? The thing is that, of course, it would be ideal for the moral argument here if we could safely determine whether playing violent video games makes you more aggressive or more violent or not. Unfortunately, this has been ongoing for years. Yeah, this is this is the problem. Well, one of the problems that I have with this article, right, is that, and I don't even know that he's doing this on purpose, but the idea is that this all presupposes that there is a negative outcome of, of violent video games. And he does kind of get into what he thinks that 
that may the underlying problem may be a little later on. But maybe you can tell that when we're talking about utilitarianism and we're applying this kind of lens to violent video games, it does kind of assume that there is an outcome and then that it is negative or that there is a risk involved with it, right? So the problem then becomes, well, is that is that present in every instance of a violent video game? And how can you measure that? Where does that go? There's There's all kinds of issues that come up. Yeah, I think it's a little bit, it gets very intricate at that point because it relies on empirical research that is not really conclusive. Right. I think from what I understand is that his argument is basically, so we were not able to determine a causal link between playing ultra-violent video games on the one hand and aggressive or violent behavior on the other. Like, we... We are investigating this, and there are some studies that come to the conclusion that there is a link, but it's like uh, at, at most moderate one, not a necessarily significant one. Other studies say like there's absolutely no link. And overall, I think by now, this is 2022 now, the state of research is it doesn't seem like there is any kind of link that is so significant that we need to be concerned about it. But Waddington says... We need to be consider. We need to consider from a utilitarian perspective that it could be there. We don't mm. know exactly. We can't exactly say that it's that it doesn't exist. That's why we must factor it in as a potentiality. That's kind of the wobbly argument that this utilitarian consideration stands on. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's sort of a, a weak basis for it. But I and, and and you know to play devil's advocate, as as much as I think the research would say that there is no link, you can't 100% say absolutely not, right? And so then the the question becomes, well, looking at things on a case-by-case basis, how do you, <laughs> how many utils or like units of utility are coming from each of these <laughs> examples, right? Yeah. And especially, they become especially significant when you weigh them against one another. Let's say, hypothetically speaking, like we do know that the the culprits who, who uh, were involved in the Columbine high school massacre that they drew direct references to doom and such video games right mm-hmm. so right. let's say hypothetically speaking that if they wouldn't have been involved or engrossed in this world of like you know playing doom playing other violent video games that they might not have committed that massacre we don't know that that's a hypothetical assumption but if we assume that 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 made at least some kind of difference then the risk of course, and the negative consequences are tremendous because that means that in the worst case scenario that we will have actual mass shootings, that we will have people who will die and the world will basically blow up in flames (laughs) because so many people play video games that it's only a matter of time until everyone goes around shooting everyone. Right, right. On the other hand, what are the benefits well, some people are enjoying it. That's kind of the argument that Waddington <laughs> makes, you know. Some people are having fun doing this. And this is a really... Uh, this is this doesn't weigh in particularly heavily. Joy of doing this doesn't really count much when on the other side you have even a small chance of potentially even saving lives. And that's... That's, that's maybe my broader issue with utilitarianism. <laughs> is the... I guess as a thought experiment, I understand, I understand the reasoning behind it, but 
I think that when it comes to real world examples, right, it is difficult to kind of pin down, all right, well, there's a 0.01% chance that this, that there is this link and that we're all eventually going to engage in real life ultraviolence, right? Compared to, well, it's just entertainment and it, or <laughs> entertainment at the lightest, art at the heaviest, maybe. And I, you know, to, to me, it's just, there's, there's a lot of footwork that you have to do to kind of get to that argument. And it doesn't hold up, especially nowadays, I think, that we've had this argument for so long. Yeah. It's so problematic, especially if you mm. assume, you said like it's a 0.01% chance or something yeah. that, let's say, something really seriously harmful comes about someone playing an ultra-violent video game. Well, at which degree do you factor in such let's say, almost negligible possibilities, if you have a certain chance when you let people drive cars that someone is going to, as happened in Germany, drive into a Christmas market, for example, and commit a, a terrorist attack by doing so, then would that mean that, well, if you prohibit people from driving cars, well, then things go slower, but at least nobody dies. So, well, utilitarianism would come to the conclusion... You know, it's a little bit ridiculous because you can't factor in every single possibility and always assume the worst case because that's just not how life actually works. No, it's always looking backwards, I think, utilitarianism, which is the problem because you can't, there's no, there's no equation that you can plug in to get the answer. It's only retro, retrospectively that you say, well, that was good or that was bad. And that's fine. I think that's that's okay to do when you're when you are looking back on something but it's hard to do it's hard to project arguments with utilitarianism i think yeah that's true it is probably quite a bit easier to do it in retrospect to analyze to analyze arguments and ethical or moral reasonings rather than project into the future especially since that hedonistic calculus of adding things up against one another calculating that is such a such a tough feat to accomplish even if you think about this video game example, Waddington on the positive side, he puts in joy. He says, like, people are enjoying this, but it doesn't weigh all that much. But he completely overlooks, you have hinted at that already, artistic expression is also worth something. There's also a huge video game industry that produces jobs, and there's a profound passion and happiness revolving around video game culture that is so widespread <laughs> that it, it can't be underestimated. Just simply saying, okay, a couple of people enjoy it, mm, that's maybe not really acknowledging the benefits and the positive effects in this case. Precisely. And I think it's to to just call it joy, I think, is undermining is undermining that because, you know, take a game like the the latest God of War, which I think is a beautiful artistic expression of how anger and violence can actually poison you. And you need to bring yourself out of that for others. We couldn't have had that. We couldn't have had the most recent God of War without all of the preceding God of Wars that were all leading to this interesting argument. So then, then you break down, okay, even looking at a game like that, what is the utility of going through a, an evolution like that to come to the conclusion that violence is bad, right? Is it worth 
going on? I would say yes. The artistic expression of growing up with a game series like God of War and then seeing a character like Kratos becoming this caring father that he never had, I think is a, that's a worthwhile artistic endeavor that you overlook if you say, well, it's just joy. It's just, it's just entertainment. Well, yeah. not really. There was a lot going on there. There's a lot going on, especially over time. This is, this is what you emphasized already, that if you look at it from, if you look at the first three God of War games, then maybe you would be like, uh, you would disapprove of them because they are ultra-violent, and we're using the term very liberally, ultra-violent. They are explicitly depicting violence. That would be the more accurate way to phrase it. Mm, but obviously you couldn't have known at that point that it would all lead to a kind of very empathic and intricate discussion of emotions, of the role of the father, and of the consequences of violence. Since you couldn't have known that, you couldn't have given a smart answer from utilitarian perspectives. But Waddington also says, he comes to the conclusion that he, he would be a bit cautious from a utilitarian standpoint, right? That's how I read it. He comes to the conclusion that because of all these possibilities and because there is no proven link between ultraviolence and video games on the one hand and violent actions on the other, because that link doesn't empirically, we haven't found it, we haven't been able to prove such a thing, that's why we can't really go all out and say, from a utilitarian perspective, ultraviolent video games are categorically bad. So, fair play to him, because it is, this is, I... Uh, the utilitarian argument you mentioned the trolley problem earlier i i guess i'm i'm just at the point in my life where maybe 5 or 10 years ago i would have really wrestled with the trolley problem and thought to myself wow this is this is really big stuff but now it's like well, what the one of <laughs> one of my favorite things about that show the good place is that they're having a hypothetical argument about the trolley problem and one of the characters says, why don't we just do it? And he makes it real. <laughs> and then it, it all falls apart because you can't just have this thought experiment when you're faced with a problem of, oh my God, what do I have to choose? <laughs> so yeah. that's, that's the utilitarian problem to me. And so fair play to Waddington. I think he kind of says, yeah, it's not the best way to look at everything. <laughs> I've seen that the correct answer to the trolley problem is actually that you have to wait until the first two wheels of the trolley are like over the the intersection and then mm. you flick the switch that, so that the trolley goes sideways and breaks before even rolling over anyone ah but then <laughs> then perhaps you run the risk of the trolley f flipping over and crushing both. both groups <laughs> <laughs> that's the ultra violent video gamer yeah. here giving an answer <laughs> Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> How do I get both? How do I get the maximum <laughs> points? Do I get a trophy if I kill them all? <laughs> um, maybe there's something to this after all. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe maybe we should move on with some Kantian considerations here. Yes. I love Immanuel Kant. I have to say that I've written a term paper about Immanuel Kant once, about the possibility of the moral atheist. Mm. Can you be moral while being at the same time an atheist? A tip, I came to the conclusion, yes. <laughs> you <can. laughs> well, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you gave us the answer. Well, Immanuel Kant, he had a completely different perspective on the matter. And that is one 
of the categorical imperative, which he coined. He's really not concerned with the consequences of an action. The consequences that utilitarianism is all about, they don't matter all that much for Immanuel Kant. Instead, what determines the moral status of an action is the intention behind it, or what he calls the maxime, the premise upon which you act. And in order to put this into a proper framework, he gave, I think, in total four phrasings of the categorical imperative. Mm, we're going to only engage with the first two because they are the most popular ones, but there are more. <laughs> he, he went, had at it several times. Mm, and the thing is that we have to consider for Immanuel Kant, when he talks about the categorical imperative, then what he means is not like something that we might think is right or wrong or something that is strongly implied, like you really should do that. But this is duty ethics. This is necessarily binding because it follows logically. He basically thought about morality as in you can logically deduce the moral thing to do, the morally correct thing to do, and that's what the categorical imperative tries to do, a necessarily binding principle. The first formulation is the most popular one, and it goes as follows, quote, Act only in accordance with that maxim through which you can at the same time will that it become a universal law, end quote. Shall I read it again just to let it sink in a little bit? Yeah, I think this is, this is worth repeating. <laughs> okay, here we go. Act only in accordance with that maxim through which you can at the same time will that it become a universal law, end quote. And by the way, the German translation of Ima uh, the English translation of Immanuel Kant is a lot easier to read than the German original. The German original text <laughs> is so dense. It's really interesting. You can spend a lot of you can spend your whole life reading Immanuel Kant and trying to decipher what he's actually talking about. I believe it. It's it's uh, it's dense enough in English. I feel like <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's often broken down for the sake of simplicity into the golden rule. Basically, don't do upon others what you don't want to be done upon yourself, or treat others like you want to be treated. Yeah, there's some there's some intuitive morality that we have that says i would not want this to happen to me therefore it should not be done exactly exactly and the thing is if we take an example such as uh, i mean stealing is a famous example that is used uh, to to illustrate this basically the thing is not what is the consequence of stealing so it's not so much about if you steal then you're taking money from someone else and then you have more money and that's not fair. and or That's all not relevant. The question is the maxime upon which you act. So if you steal because you want to have more money, because you are, let's say, quite a bit greedy and you think you should be better off than others, then that will be the maxime of your action. And regardless of what it brings about, regardless of whether it makes you a lot happier than you were before, it is wrong, because if you assume that that maxim, that premise, is universal law, then that means that everyone acts in accordance to the maxim that they shall be better off than others. And that would be then how the world works, which is in fact pretty much capitalism. 
but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna I was gonna say that would be a miserable world, and then I thought to myself, oh wait a minute. <laughs> oh wait. <laughs> Where is this argument leading? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this is basically the idea, and the second formulation gives it a little bit more spice, I think. It's not as popular as the first one and not as widely known, which is why we should definitely add it in here. So the second formulation of the categorical imperative is, quote, so act that you use humanity, whether in your own person or in the person of any other, always at the same time as an end, never merely as a means, end quote. And that means that you should always consider the interests of other people. You should never use other people as tools. Which I think, and I guess, I guess you can relate it back to, I would not want to be used as a tool, therefore I should not do this to other people, right? And I suppose when you, you mentioned your term paper, right? So the idea of uh, morality... In an, in an athe- from an atheistic lens, right? This idea, I think, the counter-argument to a lot of what Kant says is that, well, <clears throat> there is some universal truth given to us by a god, and so these rules are dictated, and therefore we should not do them, right? But Kant would argue, well, you don't need that, because you can sit with yourself and think, I would not want to have anything stolen from me, because that that would be devastating. Therefore, I should not do that to others because I want to live in a world where we don't devastate each other, right? Likewise, I don't want to use this person in a in a way solely as like a means to an end because I wouldn't I wouldn't feel good if that happened to me. So, I I'm going to treat others with respect, <laughs> basically. Exactly. Do I feel comfortable being entirely exploited? Mm, that's really no. the question. <laughs> yeah. No, of course not. And if you don't feel comfortable with that, then maybe you shouldn't enslave others. You know, slavery is a is a classic example of this because slavery is is literally the epitome of using someone else as a means and not as an end. That's always like, it's a little weirdly, a little bit weirdly phrased, but as an end is kind of the goal of an action and the means is the way to get there. And using people as a means is using them as a tool. When you have a slave, then you're not considering their ends, their goals, what they want to do. You only use them as means. And that is very easy to reason from a categorical imperative standpoint, why it is morally wrong, why it's not acceptable. But if you think about video games now, Mm. things get a little bit more complicated because the thing is, the important point that Waddington goes into here is in the second formulation, Kant says, whether in your own person or in the person of any other. So this means you should not only treat other people as ends and not merely as means, but also yourself. You have a moral obligation towards yourself, a moral duty, in fact, towards yourself to be virtuous it's an obligation it's a duty that you have to fulfill i think this this comes from a place of when you there's this kind of idea and i'm not i'm not a a big kantian scholar but i think you can kind of reason that if you engage in let's go back to stealing if you engage in the act of stealing you are harming other people but the act of harm harms yourself right? There's this sense that you have tarnished yourself 
in some way by engaging in this uh, poor decision. And so Kant would say, well, it's not just others. You, you should also take care of yourself, basically, right? Exactly. You should take care of yourself. You have an obligation to take care of yourself. You should not be cruel to others. You should not be gruesome to others. You should not torture others. That is exactly the argument that Waddington is harping on because Kant says, you know, if we think about animals, the thing is animals, for Kant, they don't really have a moral status in themselves because they are not humans. So they don't have any kind of moral rights. They don't have kind of a right for their well-being or something that is immediately tied to the categorical imperative because they're not moral beings. But still Kant says, and I guess he would have been beaten up if he said otherwise, <laughs> we still should not torture animals. Animal cruelty is not acceptable. Except for in some circumstances where it's necessary for example, when it comes to, you know, research or when it comes to eating animals so you can survive. But we hunting should not otherwise yeah. be, yeah, hunting. We, we should otherwise not be cruel to animals because that cruelty that, as you said, Dan, harms ourselves. It inflicts a certain harm upon the moral obligation that we have onto ourselves to be cruel and gruesome to animals. And Waddington says, well, maybe... Quote, if animals can be said to be an analog of humanity, perhaps video game characters are as well. After all, video game characters are often representations of humans. End quote. Now, this is where, because I, I must admit, I read this with a bit of a chip on my shoulder, right? Because this, the violence in video games argument is to me, very tired. It's, it's like treading old ground, but this was a point that I found myself thinking about really intensely because I've written before about how, um, I think that we, I, I feel we owe something to characters in a video game where I've, I've talked before about in kingdom hearts, there are characters who are shown to, they're told to, uh, it's told to us that they have no emotion, and yet we see them emote. And so, to me, that brings up this argument of, what am I doing to these characters by engaging with this story? And so, that quote that you just read really made me sit and think, well, what am I really, what am I doing when I engage in, in violent acts in a video game? Because I think it is a harsh example, but it's one worth examining that there is an analog between hurting an animal with no point of, you know, with no intent of hunting or eating it and just like killing an NPC for fun. There, it, it may be weak, but there is something there. And I think that that's worth looking at. It's something that ties back to ourselves and our relations that we ha our relation that we have with these other, let's say, beings. Because even though, I mean, I would say there is a very fun, fundamental difference between animals and video game characters, namely the first one being like, they're alive. They're real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> video game characters arguably are not. Otherwise, I get when you say like we have a certain, we, we might have a certain obligation towards characters in video games. 
but not in a sense like we do towards other people in daily life, because otherwise it would be like morally wrong if we don't play the game or don't finish the game because we haven't finished the arc, right? It has a different moral status, but still there is an eeriness that that remains behind when you think, well, they are, they might not be real, but they are very much assimilated to the degree that they might be. And what does it say about ourselves and the relationship that we have with our own virtues if we enjoy harming them. Yes. So this is where I would say the self-reflection comes into it. And I think I'm much more inclined to agree with this sort of Kantian view. But again, it's, it's, not, really, it's not really perfect because, as you say, video game characters aren't real like a, like a rabbit is, you know? At least, though, harming video game characters does not bring about any good. It does Mm. not do anything good. It does not help us hone our kind of moral or virtuous integrity and does not help us practice the categorical imperative. Therefore, there's nothing really good about playing ultra-violent video games. And I know that this argument is so deeply flawed, I actually wholeheartedly disagree with that because i think what kant actually means with the duty towards ourselves something that's very different than what what waddington argues but i just want to basically make that point sharpen that point so that we can address it in the future because this is a very common argument basically it's like well of course the character on the screen the civilian that walks around in gta 5 of course that's not a real person but what does it say about you that you enjoy running them over yeah, I think the the important takeaway from this section is that uh, it, when looking at this argument, this is the first time uh, I've said, okay, well, all right, there's something there. There's a kernel there, actually. We should look at that. <laughs> something is there, and that's actually also where Waddington changes gears a little bit. Mm. Because so far, what Waddington said was very much oriented towards a a normative perspective. Waddington was trying to determine, by applying utilitarianism and Kantian duty ethics, whether enjoying ultraviolent video games is morally wrong. Now he shifts gears and he says, well, okay, mm, we can't quite determine that for sure, but we can try and understand why it feels wrong. Why does it feel so weird when we maybe run over characters in GTA 5 or when we see someone doing that and we feel just like a little bit, ah, is that really necessary? Like, yeah, yeah. When, even when you, when I play Elden Ring, which I still do with great joy, and there are, there are enemies that actually do not harm you. As soon as you trigger them, they just basically turn around and run. And then I leap after them and split them in half with my katana. <laughs> and I think... Mm, what have I just done? <laughs> yes. I don't know I, about I myself anymore. Something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm literally tarnished now. You used that word before <laughs> in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what Waddington calls simulation unease. Because the thing is, it is deeply unsettling to us when we do not know whether a morally virtuous act is authentic or whether it is fake. When we don't know whether someone is actually, let's say, a very believable, morally virtuous person or whether they actually have some kind of hidden side to them that is very scary and terrible. That's why he says, quote, Indeed, 
the suspicion that our models of virtue may not be virtuous pervades our society. The press takes great delight whenever a supposed pillar of the community is toppled, end quote. And this, I think, is a synthesis of the two things, utilitarianism and the categorical imperative, which is this fear I think we all have that is, okay, well, if I'm not looking at the consequences of an action, but I am looking at the kind of moral imperative behind it, what if a person is lying about having that moral imperative, right? This, this, this fear that there is no deep down or there is no, I meant well behind it. They may have not meant well. Or what, what if we can't make the, what if we can't make the distinction? That's a scary thought. And I think when we play a video game and we engage in certain acts of violence, that question comes up for ourselves. Like, what did I really mean to do here? Right. Do you know the most terrible example of this? Uh, Kevin Spacey. Oh dear. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know whether you remember this, but Kevin Spacey, former star of House of Cards, the American adaptation, basically, uh, left the show ungracefully after there had been some reveals about his past that he had um, relations, I think, with a minor or he molested like a a minor, I think a boy. And then his his response to that was kind of like having his coming out, which was kind of very off because people said like, well, nobody cares whether you're gay or not. You've actually molested someone like, dude. Yeah, yeah. But then he took the most terrible step he could possibly have taken. He went away for a while and... He went in his, I think he said like he's going to go in therapy and so on. And then he appeared all of a sudden again in a video. In a video where he played the role of Frank Underwood, a terrible, scary, creepy and morally corrupt character, arguing that he should be re-employed on the show. He deliberately, if we employ this framework, he deliberately caused that unease. He deliberately blurred the lines of his wrongdoings and the wrongdoings that were obviously fake of his character that he played. And I just saw that video and I thought, why would you do that? It's like, people are going to hate you more <laughs> if you do that, you know? The levels of, of duplicity and subterfuge and <laughs> Janus two-facedness. I mean, the, the video is called Let Me Be Frank. The, the Just, you can dissect the gross meaning of all it it just is a perfect you're so right to bring that up it's a perfect example <laughs> of this horrible feeling that you get where you look <laughs> at someone and you're like what is your intention you creep <laughs> i don't understand what you're doing because the thing is i can like it's totally fair that when you when you are an actor and you play a character that does terrible things wonderful enjoy you know that's sure. why you're an actor yeah. <laughs> enjoy even though if you if you see the actor who played let's say joffrey from uh, <laughs> game of thrones on the street you might think like oh god that's that dude but no actually he's not it was all just acting but if you then mix it in with something that is authentic that is real that is actually that is a, an actual crime that's the most stupid pr move you can possibly do <laughs> <laughs> the, thing is, <laughs> the thing is that this is exacerbated this kind of unease of we don't know whether it's real or not it's exacerbated by the fact that we don't know anymore as a society whether bad people will actually be punished and whether good people will actually be rewarded this is something that brings us back to this question of the 
moral atheist. I did not intend for this to come up ever again on the show. It was just a weird anecdote. But indeed, it's very befitting because the reason why, when you're a firm believer in heaven and hell, then you have this kind of idea that good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell, and all is well. This is how it's supposed to be, and this motivates me to be good because, hey, I want to definitely go to heaven. Now, we don't know anymore in this day and age whether this is actually true. It's kind of been debunked as a myth. I don't want to disillusion anyone, but mm. I'm not so sure whether this actually is what's going to happen after we pass on. And that's what makes it even more frightening because we can't tell whether someone is truly good or not. And that's what Waddington applies to video games when he says we kind of have this constant play pretend of committing violent acts. We constantly pretend that we run around an open world and we smash everything to pieces. We pretend that we chainsaw people into small pieces. Whatever. <laughs> there's, there's a whole lot of stuff going on in video games that we shoot people. We constantly shoot. How many times do we shoot guns in video games? Often at people that are labeled as being bad guys and so on. But yeah, we, we constantly shoot at other people. And it kind of causes this weird, this eerie unease. That's like, hmm, how many times do you basically have to shoot at a virtual character for it to have an impact on how you feel when you shoot at a real person? Well, and here's, there's a couple of things I want to dissect here. Because he does, he does make the difference in saying that right now, the he says right now, back in 2007, the depictions of violence are kind of crude. And so there is a level of distinction. But he says, in a kind of cautionary way, when we get to the Jean Baudrillard Matrix version of reality where it's indistinguishable between simulation and reality, that's going to be really hard to parse. And I think it's maybe a more apt argument to make now because things do seem a bit more realistic, I suppose you could say, you know, technology and video games has come a long way since 2007. And I think what he's getting at, and I want to be charitable to this argument, because I do, again, I think there's a kernel of something here. It's not that he's saying engaging with violent video games will make you stupid and believe that reality is fiction and vice versa. He's not making that argument. He's saying that the barrier weakens when we engage in this to a degree that is worth scrutiny and kind of worth being worried about. Because if you're, this is, I think, where the argument of being desensitized to violence comes in. If you, as you say, Stefan, are shooting a gun every day in a video game, you may be more likely to say, well, I want to I shoot a real gun, right? Does that mean you're going to say, I'm going to kill people? Probably not. But you may be more intrigued to go and learn about real guns because of your interaction with video game weapons. Yeah, and as silly the argument is that video games basically train you to engage with, with, with weapons, I always found that argument to be rather silly because, of course, I can't handle an actual shotgun. It would probably just fly out of my hand and hit me in the head, <laughs> and then I would probably be unconscious. Yeah. Uh, but I do remember <laughs> that, you know, these... Uh, these festival booths, these carnival booths where you can like shoot to get some plushies. Mm, you yeah. fire like a like a gun. I did that. I mean, 
As you can imagine, in Germany, I, I don't have many occasions to ever see even a real gun. It doesn't happen around these parts. But I had this wooden rifle in my hand, and I was just, it was just for this, for this carnival, and I started shooting at these tiny painted ducks, and I realized, wow, I'm surprisingly good at this. And uh, <laughs> someone asked me standing next to me, like, have you trained this? And I'm like, uh, I've been <laughs> played a lot many of video games. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> played lots of Counter Strike and listened to yeah. Marilyn Manson. And then he's like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, think there is something that, yes, of course, it might be, it is all simulation and play pretend. But of course, I learn a little bit about how to actually, how to aim down the sights, for example. I learn from more simulation heavy games that I ought to fully exhale before I fire a shot so that my fingers are still as still as they possibly can be. Mm. And I also might, and this is just something like a speculation, I might be a little bit desensitized to the fact that if someone were to approach me and if I was in any danger and I had a gun on me, that I might even be even the slightest more willing to use it than someone who has never played around with a virtual gun. And what does this mean when you have uh, like AR and VR technology, right? This is like right. going forward when you actually draw the gun from this from your hip and you ha actually have to aim down the sights and you have to reload your magazine properly and so on. The closer this gets to the real act, the more eerie the simulation unease. I think this is the important thing to take away from this because I want to make very clear we're not we're not agreeing with an argument that you know video games lead to real world violence. I I don't think that's the takeaway here. I think that you could you could supplant violence for anything else with this simulation unease and it would be just as true, right? So if you if you play a game for example where you're learning how to cook, right? It may be the case that you find that your cooking skills improve or you know, it, it could it could go in any direction here and that is not as scary because cooking is good and fun, right? But yeah. vi violence is a little murkier. And I think that I'm reminded of, um, there's a Kurt Vonnegut novel called Mother Night. And it there's a, the, the point of the novel without going into detail in the story is basically we should, we should be careful about the, the roles that we play, lest we become the role. And I do think that there is some historical precedent for eventually you wear a mask so long that there be, it's a distinction without a difference, right? And I think what Waddington is getting at here is that we should at least think about that with violence in video games because there is some potential for it becoming more normalized than it may have been otherwise. Whether you agree with that or not, I think that's a whole other argument, but I do think that's the takeaway from this whole article for me. I think that's definitely his strongest case that he's making here. Although I must say, I find this most interesting from the angle of descriptive ethics, where it's not so much about, so does that mean it is right or wrong? But simulation unease helps us understand why people might feel that it's right or wrong. Basically, what Waddington is doing here in my mind is he's explaining the bystander effect. 
the the effect. Oh yeah. I don't know whether this is correct. Whether this is correct terminology in in German, it's like Beifahrer, where it's like you know you're driving along, or when you basically just uh, or the back seat. That's it. Yeah. Right. The, yeah, yeah. The, the back seat argument when you're sitting next to someone who plays a game, and you're observing what they are doing, and then you might feel this kind of simulation unease more strongly so than they are, because while they are engrossed in a game and they know exactly the functions of everything. If you look at it, if you look at someone playing Doom without knowing Doom, I'm talking about Doom Eternal, modern Doom game, contemporary Doom game, then the only thing you see is someone raging around, slaughtering demons with blood and gore splattering across the screen for like 18 hours, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and then you might think, wow, this is really terrible. So I think this idea of simulation unease, it explains the eerie sensation that a backseat gamer would experience or a parent would experience coming into the room of a child looking at the screen being like, oh my God. <laughs> I, that's, that's such a good point because what, what you just described, I think, is the, the feeling that everyone has who engages with this argument, which is, that's not what I'm doing at all. <laughs> I'm not, I, you, you have an idea of what I'm doing. I have an idea of what I'm doing and never the twain shall meet until you do what I'm doing. <laughs> mm, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Because you think, uh, like you see someone slaughtering around a city or running over passes by. And then what you're actually doing is you're testing the limits of a play space. You're basically just experimenting and see how long can I survive while being hunted, which is not that much different than playing basically, you know, playing catch outside where it's just like, how long can I evade others? and still, uh, you know, keep my run going. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> do you think, do you think there's any credence to the idea that, you know, when you have a bit of uh, plastic wrap and you, you move, <laughs> you move your hand over it and it makes that horrible screeching sound. And when you're doing it, it doesn't bother you. But when someone else is in the room, they say, can you please stop that? It's driving me insane. <laughs> exactly. Because you are in control and you know what you're doing. <laughs> You can stop it yeah. at any point, but I can't yes. stop you at any point. Uh, yeah. Ah, hmm. we've hit on, okay, the, the, the saran wrap theory of Waddington here. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is, I think, the strongest point, even though Waddington might not have necessarily intended it to be that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the simulation unease is exactly what I think changes the framework for someone who's not actually playing in the moment. And it's this kind of description of what's happening in this What's driving this moral panic revolving around violence in video games? Wow, this has been quite a ride. And you have to consider this is only part one. Yes. Because in our next reading episode, we might well read an article. I've got one in mind already. And we would argue exactly the opposite of what we argue today. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's also important. Fun. Yeah, and important to understand... Uh, these arguments, I think, from all sides so that you are more well-informed on the discourse. Because otherwise, you may have a feeling uh, that you disagree with something, but you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't know why. <laughs> and here we are kind of going into, let's give, let's let's steel man this, these ideas and look into them so that we can tear them down later. We can tear them down and we can also learn some stuff that might not have been necessarily the intention such as the simulation unease idea so what do you think about this 
have you what is your intuition when it comes to the simulation unease does the idea convince you that this might be exactly the concept of the well i'm not going to say bystander i'm going to say backseat shall i say backseat effect or is it bystander effect is something else right yeah bystander effect is i think you you don't engage with something i think backseat effect is much much more apt for this yeah exactly the simulation unease does that equate the backseat effect and have you ever experienced that please let us know by writing in to podcast at studyingpixels.com and while you while you do that we're going to move ahead and do some side questing Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As you know, in our side quests, we venture through the internet to bring you stories and articles that we find interesting and relevant. We also talk about our own impressions of games we are currently playing, and you can find everything that we talk about linked in the show notes. Number one, Microsoft's dodgy DRM comes into the limelight and no one's smiling. By Martin <laughs> Robinson on Eurogamer.net. It's such a scary headline. What a mess. What an what absolute a mess. The thing yeah. is that, uh, first of all, maybe as a background information, we do have to consider that when Microsoft first announced its Xbox One, there was a huge outcry because Microsoft had announced originally that the Xbox One would have to be always online. And it had this intricate system for how you can share games and it would constantly check on whether the copy of that you're playing of a game right now is actually yours. It would perform a DRM check, a digital rights management check. Now, they basically went back on that and they made it big turnaround and they said like no no no, it was all just a joke uh, after <laughs> after sony had clearly taken them over several laps uh, yes. they said like no no no, we're, we're, we're going to do this completely differently it's all fine it's actually going to be just like with the playstation only better however wink. wink as it turns out this last weekend microsoft servers experienced some outages 
And that in itself is not that much of a problem. It happens, you know, can happen to anyone. But it turns out that as these Microsoft servers went down, that quite some people were unable to play their games. And that includes games that they had downloaded already, as well as games that they physically own. So actual discs that people had purchased. This is... I want I want to be fair here because people know that I'm a Sony pony, so I need to be especially cautious when talking negatively about Microsoft. This is not an issue exclusive to Microsoft. We know that as Gran Turismo 7 launched on Sony's PlayStation, they also had a disastrous launch because the servers were down in the first couple of days and people couldn't play the game. And for some reason, Gran Turismo demands that you are always online. Now, mm. the thing is, though, what happens at, in the background is exactly a DRM check. This is why you need to be online. The servers are performing a check. Is the copy that you own legitimate? And if it either is not legitimate, you get kicked out, or if the check fails or doesn't run, then you can't start the game. And this caused quite some problems. People were asking, interesting, I thought you had abandoned this idea. So, what exactly is the DRM policy in place? How frequently does Microsoft check on the copies of the games that we own? And is it even possible at all to basically have an Xbox One, Xbox Series S or Series X and play entirely offline? Is, does that even work? Or will the console just lock us out because it can't check the legitimacy of the copy? Mm. That's basically the whole story, except for that afterwards, as this entire controversy was ongoing. Microsoft released a statement on Twitter and they said that there would be, quote, a full mitigation, end quote, over the next coming days, that they would introduce some sort of update. But as of yet, we do not know what this update will entail and whether it will potentially remove some DRM checks that have been implemented secretly. I think that I understand DRM checks, I suppose, like in this, in the digital age that we live in but here's here's a big problem with it <laughs> it's all of a sudden millions of people are locked out of their gaming console <laughs> so I don't, I don't know it seems like uh if your intent is to have a, a machine that plays video games the first thing it should do is play video games at any point in time yeah it is though as a concept as such i think a little bit intrusive this kind of idea of not only am I going to check... Like, I understand. If you maybe have to activate a copy once. Fair enough. Sure. If yeah, that's yeah. what you need to do, fine. I think this has been around for many years that you have some kind of activation key that can only be used once. And, of course, if you download a copy, you can only, only download it to your own account. And that account must be activated on a console. I understand all of that. But this idea of constantly checking in on on users it's too intrusive it's like hey I, I purchased this game i used it before you can see that i've logged in before and it was a legitimate copy why do i need to constantly prove now why am i in a situation of having to prove persistently that i still own a legitimate copy I, yeah, it just doesn't make any sense like at at, at that point wh what what is <laughs> what does microsoft think is happening that you're buying a you're <laughs> you genuinely legitimately purchase a video game and then you say and now i will pirate it and log in with my pirated <laughs> copy every time it doesn't make any sense so i it, it honestly i wouldn't 
I wouldn't be surprised if there is no nefarious thought behind this and it's just a stupid mistake. Because that almost feels exactly like what it is. <laughs> That's most likely the case. They probably just yeah. implemented this at some point and it was active all this time and nobody noticed because there was no major server outage, no which is also, yeah. I mean, good on Microsoft that they didn't have such outages. But now suddenly people are drawing it into the spotlight and are saying like, hey, what's going on? Again, we might have to update you on what exactly has happened and how this situation has been resolved in the coming weeks because for now we don't know exactly what kind of update this will be. So we'll basically stay in tune with that particular story. Number two. Uh, I wish that Konami and Silent Hill... I, I, I love it so much. I wish that we had a tombstone for it. <laughs> So that we knew it was dead because all of these rumors, my poor old heart, I can't take it stuff. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there was a recent uh, leak that came out and you might be saying, okay, there's leaks all the time about video games. Why would this matter any differently? Especially for Silent Hill, which is a series that has had so many hints and hopes and dreams uh, associated with its return. Um, so there were a couple of images that leaked and they, they did look very Silent Hilly, to be fair. I mean, there was you. Uh, you can still find them uh, in some places online, um, but they looked like you know the other world of Silent Hill. There was a character that had some tattoos or writing on her face or something, thought to be a main character, and there was people on Twitter who thought, "Oh, these images look like a Silent Hill leak. Maybe that's true." But obviously that could happen anywhere, anytime. The big difference here is that Konami uh, enacted a copyright claim on those images and had them striked from Twitter, had them removed. There's a DMCA copyright takedown. So the idea suspicious. now, very suspicious. And so this, this article that I've brought, I've, I've chosen that's talked about it is from a website called Xfire by Ray uh, Ampolok. Ampolokio? I hope I've pronounced that right, right? Um, he, he's basically making the argument that that DMCA takedown seems to have all but confirmed that that is what it is. Because if these weren't legitimate, why would Konami care? Now, Konami has its own weird practices, so I wouldn't necessarily put it past them to strike down an, a, a, an image that was thought to be propri proprietary to them. But I do agree that it gives some legitimacy that while it may not be a Silent Hill leak, maybe it's some kind of project that Konami's working on. So at the very least, that seems real to me. If it's a Silent Hill game, I can only dream. <laughs> In my restless dreams, I see that game. Could it maybe be a possibility that that image was not from a game that is currently in production, but that has been in production in the past and that was cancelled? They, there's some thought behind that because it seems like these images were from 2020. So either that was from a game that's been in production for a few years, which would be, I guess, good for whatever game it is. Um, it's been, it's been worked on for a while, or like you say, this is something that was maybe in the works that they shut down. They never talked about, they never released any press for it. And they just want that removed because it doesn't exist anymore. Why is Konami still sitting on that Silent Hill license? That's the thing. They, 
they release merchandise for it. They have their pachinko machines in Japan that are huge. Uh, so they, I are mean, they, that may those, be the answer. Uh, are those Silent Hill pachinko machines? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why, would, why would you do that? <laughs> because I guess that's, that's where, I think that's where Konami's properties go to die. <laughs> it's <the> pachinko <laughs> yeah. machines where other companies, other companies do like pay to win. Konami does pachinko parlors. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I think, whatever floats yeah. your boat. But, but I, I think, guess so. My, I mean, my idea was, and I think we spoke about that in one of our episodes, in the mashup episodes, I think they should just give up that license. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, that my suggestion was to basically now sell it to Microsoft in this in this uh, case and have Ninja Theory work on it, who are yes. currently working on Hellblade 2 and make a proper, nice Silent Hill game. Because I have this feeling we have get these constant weird teases. Also, you remember uh, Hideo Kojima and uh, Guillermo del Toro who kind of were like, oh, it would be cool if someone made a video game about this. You yeah. Know? And it's like, like stop, what are you saying? <laughs> stop, stop turning the dagger in my chest. Yes. <laughs> <I> just, <laughs> and at this point, I almost, I don't know, between this and then the, um, the uh, abandoned controversy, if you remember that, there's a game called Abandoned that people thought was a Silent Hill title, and then it's just a game that these developers are creating. I think, I don't know, it's, do do something with it, Konami, or just let it come out and say, it's just Pachinko now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> One way or the other. Maybe it would also be important to acknowledge that Silent Hill, while, yes, legally owned by Konami, it is a series that many people have fond memories of, that many people have are attached to, and they have a genuine interest in this, uh, in the story of Silent Hill and the events that take place there. There is an investment, and these games often mean a lot to people, including the PT, the preview teaser, which never made it into a fully fleshed game, but was supposed to be before this big uh, Kojima fallout happened. <laughs> I think there is a legitimate argument to say at a certain point, just give up on it. It's, it they can't be, those Silent Hill pachinko machines, they can't make you that much money, can they? I mean, people no, don't go to no. a pachinko machine play it because it's Silent Hill print on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, it would be cool, but I'm not, I'm not uh, holding my breath. And I think, to me, this whole leak just speaks more to Konami as a speaking of morals a morally bankrupt company that that has been playing with my heart for decades at this point <laughs> ah morally bankrupt companies that are playing with our hearts that brings us to number three <laughs> <laughs> after a two-year absence it's been two years already after a two-year absence Fortnite is back on iphones but not on the app store this is an article on businessinsider.co written by Ben Gilbert. Fortnite has been off of the App Store for quite a while now. We reported on this, but in brief, mm. Epic Games included an alternative payment method for players to purchase in-game currency. And that violated Apple's policy and circumvented them from receiving a share of every transaction. Because if you're on the App Store, then you need to give, I think at that point it was still 30% of every transaction to Apple, However, if you have your in-app uh, transaction system, then 
Apple won't ever know of how much is being purchased. So promptly, Fortnite, as well as all other Epic Games products, were ejected from the App Store, and ever since then, there's an ongoing legal battle. And eventually, this lawsuit will determine whether Apple has to allow third-party storefronts on their App Store. For now, though, Fortnite did return through the back door. Because... Introducing Microsoft and the Xbox Game Pass. Hmm. While Fortnite can't be on the App Store because Apple won't allow it, it has been included now in Microsoft's Xbox Game Pass. So that means if you want to play Fortnite on an Apple device, on an iPhone or an iPad, you can download the Xbox app and you can create an account, which is free. And since Fortnite is a free-to-play game, you can run and play it. However, you must keep in mind that it is a stream. This is a streamed game. It's not running on the device itself. But that's basically, except for the fact that you need to have a stable internet connection, which I assume you want anyway if you play Fortnite, because it's kind of an online game. (laughs) Kind of. (laughs) (laughs) Then, yeah, then you could say uh, Fortnite is basically, has basically been brought back. But not, not deliberately. Right, it's not like Epic Games said we shall do this. <laughs> no, back on the app store. I don't think it's that there's sort of any insidious. Yeah. yeah, there's nothing insidious about it. It's just been included in the Xbox Game Pass, and because the Xbox Game Pass is available on iPhones and, and iPads and so on, uh, that's how it basically came back. Yeah, that's true. Wouldn't that be funny if, in this ongoing legal argument that's going on, they somehow implicate Microsoft? <laughs> and then it's just like everyone sues everyone yeah yeah (laughs) why not (laughs) a never-ending legal battle as and and disney laughing in the background just waiting (laughs) then then apple bans microsoft off the store because uh, they are not allowed to have like in-game in-app streaming because that's only for apple and then microsoft is suing apple and then Apple is suing Microsoft back because they're kind of forcing the Microsoft office on all kinds of Apple devices and are trying <laughs> to do that. And suddenly everyone sues everyone. Uh, an, an Ouroboros of legal, uh, <laughs> of legal problem. <laughs> and then Microsoft sues Epic Games because, yeah, it's... Uh, and then Activision uh, comes along. <laughs> yes. And, um, yeah. By well, the way, I mean, Activision, that's... they have been, uh, they agreed, Activision uh, shareholders agreed, the majority agreed to the Microsoft takeover. We haven't reported on that, but it is indeed the case. Oh, that's that, right. Yeah, the majority agreed, yeah. and this takeover is going to go ahead now, I think, if there are no legal reasons such as um, cartel concerns uh, so that it, there should be any problem. I mean, yeah, this can yeah. happen, but it's not, it's not very likely because it's a, form, it's a different form of integration. Like it's a form of uh, vertical integration, not horizontal integration. And therefore, it should, be, it should not be a problem. What a, what a weird world we live in, Stefan. Do you, think, do you ever think about, and, and not to get too nostalgic here, but do you ever think about the late 90s, early 2000s and just think, ah... <laughs> back back when you 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 had a land party you were killing old ladies and children and counter-strike <laughs> yeah i remember that <laughs> the times the times when i was uh, shooting people in age of empires mm, that's right those uh, were the days <laughs> uh, those were the days 
the days when such ultra-violent games like World of Warcraft came out. Ah, yes. And nothing ever bad ever happened again with Activision Blizzard or any of its subsidiaries. <laughs> yes. <laughs> with Activision Blizzard. Do you, honestly, it is astonishing that for so many years, Activision Blizzard was always this company where you had the impression they're a little bit like Rockstar games. They they yeah. take a long time to develop video games. And then after many, many years, they come out and it's always like reliably good. And I think then came Diablo 3. And that, that I think, put a, a proper dent into it with their kind of auction house that they tried to implement. Yeah. Where you could it, like you know, sell in-game items and everyone was like, mm, we don't really want that, you know? And they were like, oh, is that true? <laughs> well, then we're going to take yeah. it back, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's like, you know, uh, CD Projekt Red, like all of these golden, these golden children, they, they get put up on a pedestal and then it comes out that not, no one is perfect and there's a lot of problems all over the place. And now Apple and Microsoft and Epic and Activision are all suing each other in this never ending legal battle that we've described. <laughs> so <laughs> who's the golden child of video games at the moment? Hmm. Like, which kind of developer or publisher is the one where everyone is always like, wow, maybe Annapurna Interactive? I think Annapurna, yeah. Or Devolver that's... Digital? Like, the a smaller, the underdogs. Ooh. Everyone no, loves I think to Devolver, root for an underdog. Devolver's kind of been knocked out because people aren't super fans of Trek to Yomi. So ah, that's true. Yeah. Yep. So maybe Trek Annapurna for now. Mm, maybe Annapurna Interactive. The kind of thing where whenever the Annapurna Interactive logo shows up and people that know, like, enjoy video games quite passionately, everyone's like, oh, cool, that's surely going to be interesting. Be yeah. yeah. This will be yeah, good yeah. in some way. <laughs> well, Annapurna, uh, we look forward to your downfall, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting and waiting. <laughs> well, thank you so very much for listening to this episode. If you want to support us, and get Studying Pixels Plus, then you can do that by going to studyingpixels.com slash plus. And we'll talk again next week. See you then. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.